Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Namibia auctions off 57 wild elephants, including family groups, and plans to export 42 elephants to zoos and safari parks outside of Africa. We've heard this story before. Capturing elephants in the wild and exporting them to zoos in the United States and into China. Let me just first say that elephants are already under enormous threat. The greatest threat to elephants is wildlife crime, primarily poaching for the ivory trade. And in addition, elephants are losing their habitats. So you have the illegal killing of elephants for their ivory, you have habitat loss, and if that weren't enough, we capture wild elephants and they're used for tourism and exhibits. Vera Weber, president of Foundation Franz, said the Namibian government declared in August that it had auctioned 57 elephants to three undisclosed bidders for a total of less than $400,000 and would export 42 of them. Although we still do not know the identity of the buyers, it's highly likely that Namibia intends to export the animals to foreign zoos, which would mean a lifetime of captivity for the exported animals and a possible collapse of the fragile desert-adapted elephant population in Namibia. For both legal and ethical reasons, conservationists and wildlife trade experts have publicly called to end all elephant captures and exports. According to the Animal Welfare Institute, technically, Namibia is only allowed to export live elephants to conservation programs inside of Africa, according to the terms of the listing of their elephant population under CITES. CITES is Conventional on International Trade in Endangered Species of Welfare, Fauna, and Flora, C-I-T-E-S, CITES. However, Namibia uses a contested legal interpretation of these terms to justify sending wild, live-caught elephants to captive facilities outside of their natural range. This interpretation is highly controversial and sets a dangerous precedent for the future protection of wild elephants from the impacts of international trade. Elephant expert and president of Humane Society International, Jeff Flocken, said... African elephants are intelligent, sentient animals with highly developed emotional complexity and strong social and family bonds that last a lifetime. It is unconscionable cruelty to subject these animals to brutal and traumatic capture, separating them from their families and condemning them to lifetime captivity for the sake of human amusement. I'm going to read another quote to you. D.J. Schubert, wildlife biologist from the Animal Welfare Institute, says, With global biodiversity in a freefall, it is time to embrace protection over exploitation. As African elephant numbers continue to decline due to the ivory trade, it's imperative that we protect these animals in the wild so that they can continue to play their critical important role as ecosystem engineers by maintaining savanna habitat, creating water holes, dispersing seeds, and combating climate change. Just as transformative change is needed to address the myriad threats to biodiversity, CITES must reinvent itself by embracing new strategies to save wildlife. 
Apparently, there was a statement issued on September 8th. The CITES secretariat all but endorsed the planned exports from Namibia, only to revise it a few days later after criticism. Okay, so earlier I mentioned that this is not the first time we're reporting on this topic of the capturing of elephants from the wild and exporting them. Let me remind you about the incredibly infuriating story back in 2016. 18 elephants were captured from the wild in the kingdom of Swaziland, Africa, and shipped to the United States in order to become exhibits for three United States zoos. And it was just around the time that Ringling Brothers Circus was planning to retire their elephants from performing in circuses due to ethical issues raised not only from animal rights people, but the public. So this seemed to be when elephant conservation was really starting to achieve worldwide attention as more and more people were learning and understanding that keeping elephants in captivity is unethical and cruel. And average citizens were realizing that elephants are removed from their natural environment, separated from their families, kept chained or caged in small enclosures, endure cruel training methods so they can perform totally unnatural tricks for viewers. And more and more people just didn't want to take their families or their kids to the circus anymore. So Ringling Brothers Circus was under intense pressure. They were slowly losing their audience, their sales, as people were speaking out against the cruelty. And more and more communities and cities were banning things like bullhooks from being used. You guys know about bullhooks. Bullhooks are rods with solid steel pointed ends specifically designed to inflict pain on the elephants. Trainers, elephant trainers, stab these sharp hooks deep into the elephant's ears, mouths, and other sensitive parts where their skin is paper thin to inflict pain and force the animal to do what the trainer wants him to do. Bull hooks are needed to control and train performing elephants. You can motivate your dog to sit or roll over by giving him a treat. You can't train a wild animal to do an unnatural behavior with a treat. The only way to force the wild animal to do what you want him to do is by inflicting pain on the animal, like jamming a sharp metal rod in the elephant's ear or foot or mouth. So when the bull hooks were banned in Los Angeles, for, for instance, Ringling Brothers was no longer able to do their yearly shows at the LA Staples Center. In addition, in 2014, Oakland, California, where Ringling Brothers and Barnum Bailey Circus has always performed annually, also passed a law prohibiting the use of bullhooks. And so did other cities. So Ringling Brothers saw the writing on the wall. They were slowly being squeezed out. So in 2015, Ringling Brothers and Barnum Bailey Circus announced that they were going to retire quote, retire, they're performing elephants by 2018. But because of the constant criticism from animal rights groups and normal, regular people, an increasing number of local laws aimed at restricting their animal shows, Feld Entertainment, that's the company who owns Ringling Brothers, decided that in 2016, 
the elephants would have their final show, which occurred that year in Providence, Rhode Island, almost two years sooner than they planned. So after 145 years of featuring elephants in its circus acts, Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey finally retired all their elephants for good. So there you go, a little history of how that came to be. You might be wondering, what happened to the Ringling Brothers elephants? Where did these elephants go to, quote, retire? Well, they went to the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Center for Elephant Conservation in Florida. That's what they call it, elephant conservation. Well, that sounds like a lovely place, doesn't it? Like maybe a beautiful, conventional animal sanctuary where abused animals go to live out the rest of their lives in peace and have lots of room to roam? No, of course not. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Feld Entertainment Company is not in the business of conservation. They're an entertainment company. And how about the other 40 or so kinds of animals Feld Entertainment Company owned and used in the circus acts, like the camels and horses and llamas and goats and tigers? Where did they go after Ringling Brothers were done exploiting and abusing them? Okay, let's get back to the point of the 2016 elephant story, which is despite the almost universal acknowledgement that keeping elephants at zoos is very cruel, and the huge news story that Ringling Brothers plan to retire their elephants because of ethical issues, 18 elephants were captured and removed from the wild in Africa. They were literally ripped away from their families and their home ranges and social groups and then delivered to three United States zoos to spend the rest of their lives in captivity. And no surprise, one elephant died in the process of the transfer. But the remaining 17 elephants, who were once living free in the wild with their families, from that point on, will live out their lives confined in three U.S. zoos. And you should know which zoos we're referring to. They are the Dallas Zoo, the Sedgwick County Zoo in Wichita, Kansas, and the Henry Dorley Zoo in Omaha, Nebraska. And this occurred with the blessings of the United States Fish and Wildlife Services. And you can try to research online how these animals fared and what happened to them. And now, the big animal story we're talking about today, similar situation, Namibia auctions off 57 wild elephants, including family groups, and plans to export 42 elephants to zoos and safari parks outside of Africa. This is directly from a press release I've received from the Animal Welfare Institute. Between 2010 and 2019, African countries exported 194 wild-caught elephants, the majority of whom came from Zimbabwe, followed by Namibia. At least 22 of these animals were presumed to be dead. China has imported the largest number of elephants, followed by the United States. The IUCN, African Elephant Specialist Group, does not endorse ex situ exports because they do not contribute to the conservation of the species in its natural habitat. And by the way, I spoke in detail about how zoos harm elephants with in defense of animals Will Anderson back in 2020. If you want to listen to that show, it was very informative. That was February 2nd, 2020. 
at animalstodayradio.com. Check that show out if you want. His organization put out a review of the worst North American zoos for elephants and the cruel realities of keeping these majestic creatures in captivity. There are solitary elephants suffering in misery all over the country in our zoos and circuses and sham sanctuaries and, quote, petting zoos. It's really just so sad. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's now talk about a term we often hear in the zoo and captive animal industry, and that is conservation. And in fact, conservation is the zoo industry's most powerful marketing tool. You've heard this claim that zoos make, that they promote conservation, their activities promote animal conservation, and what they do here somehow helps animals on the other side of the globe. I have yet to make sense of this claim that their existence is necessary in the efforts to conserve animals. Sure, some zoos make financial contributions to various conservation projects, but does that translate into anything meaningful? I read at many zoos, only 1%, 1% of the budget goes to conservation. Do the zoo's contribution to conservation outweigh the costs to individual animal welfare? Or are they simply exploiting animals for profit? Of course they're exploiting animals for profit. It's obvious to anyone who gives it a minute thought that zoos cannot provide for all of the behavioral or social needs of animals in their enclosures. Have you ever asked yourself what specifically do zoos do to support their claim of helping conservation? And are such efforts useful? And the next time you consider patronizing your local zoo, just think about All the elephants who were once living free with their family units in the wild and then were captured and forced to live unnatural lives in captivity in our zoos. And ask yourself, how the hell does that serve conservation? And really, we're talking about all animals in captivity, not just the elephants. The elephants are just the most obvious example of what wild animals need, which is freedom. Freedom to have control of their own lives. And if you give it even a moment's thought, you'd have to conclude that something is very wrong with our society to want to confine these beautiful, majestic creatures and deprive them of their natural existence. Barbara King is an emerita anthropology professor at the College of William & Mary. She often writes about the cognition, emotion, and welfare of animals. And she came on the show a few years back to speak about her 2016 article titled, As a Major Zoo Closes, 10 Reasons to Rethink the Concept. She wrote this shortly after Buenos Aires Zoo in Argentina announced their plans to move almost all of its 2,500 animals to natural reserves. This is after 140 years in operation. According to The Guardian, Horacio Rodriguez Loretta, the mayor of Buenos Aires, said when announcing the news, this situation of captivity is degrading for the animals. It's not the way to take care of them. It's certainly not the way we humans are supposed to look out for and respect non-human animals here on the planet we share. 
Anyway, in this article, Barbara talks about the problems with our modern zoos. I asked her what inspired her to write this article, and she told me it was inspired by the death of Harambee. And for those of you who don't remember Harambee, let me remind you. Harambee was a 17-year-old gorilla who was shot to death by a zoo worker at the Cincinnati Zoo after a child climbed into his enclosure. This occurred in May 2016. And her point was, what happened to Harambee happens so often to so many animals at zoos. Accidents occur all the time, which leads to the animal's injury or the animal's death. And one might say, oh, but animals get injured and die in the wild. Yes, that's true. But we have some responsibility when we take these wild animals and put them in cages, don't we? I'll give you a couple more examples. The Oregon Zoo accidentally chopped off part of a lion's tail with a hydraulic door at a kid's show. A 16-month-old gorilla named Kabibi was crushed to death when a hydraulic door closed on her. This was at the San Francisco Zoo. As long as we keep animals in captivity, these accidents will continue to occur. They happen all the time. And Barbara King was explaining, it's not just about these traumatic deaths, but it's also the daily costs to animals of being confined, of being made to act very unnaturally, being taunted by zoo visitors. And of course, we touched upon the educational component because zoos often tout the fact that they provide important educational lessons to zoo goers and children, which we all know is a bunch of nonsense. Yeah, because it's important for children to see animals being crushed to death or parts of their tails being chopped off. Those are the real educational values I want to teach my kids. I mean, really, if zoos are teaching children anything, it's that imprisoning animals for our own entertainment is acceptable in that we humans are in charge and the other animals are there for our amusement. Another point in Barbara's article is the animals suffer from stress and boredom. In captivity, the animals are not getting the mental and physical stimulation that they get living in the wild. For example, let's say the animal's a predator. What's the most natural and stimulating thing a predator does? It's to hunt. Well, animals hunting other animals in zoos is forbidden. Any animal-on-animal violence is forbidden at a zoo. That would upset the public. A lot of people, including myself, can't even watch the Nature Channel or Animal Planet because it's upsetting to watch animals kill other animals, even if they're doing what is natural to them. Zoos need to make zoo-goers' experience pleasurable. Barbara said she once witnessed a groundhog get into the wolves' enclosure, and of course the wolves destroyed the groundhog because they're wild animals and that's what they do and they were just acting normally. But the public could see blood on the muzzle of the wolves, and that of course freaked everyone out. So although the wolves are trying to act like normal predators, it's not permitted at a zoo. Animals are not in their natural environment, and therefore they cannot act naturally. They are actually being prevented from acting naturally. So really, what is the educational value when visitors are not seeing a realistic depiction of how the animals really live? But that's the thing. Zoos justify their existence through two objectives, conservation and education. And that is what zoos want you to believe. But now you know that's not reality at the zoo. 
it's not possible to fulfill those objectives when wild animals are confined. And we're out of time here, but we didn't even talk about what happens when there's a surplus of animals at the zoo. Have you heard the term zoothanasia? That's the cruel practice of killing healthy zoo animals because there are too many of them. Yeah, killing healthy animals at the zoo goes along perfectly with the zoo's mission of education and conservation, doesn't it? So you want to see wild animals in real life? Visit an animal sanctuary or a wild animal rescue center or go on a photographic tour. A true sanctuary will not breed or buy animals to display them. A true wildlife sanctuary takes in unwanted, injured wildlife that can no longer survive on their own in the wild. Sanctuaries rescue unwanted wild animals who were once people's pets. Instead of killing unwanted or injured wild animals like many zoos do, true sanctuaries are a place of refuge where injured and abused and unwanted captive wildlife can live in peace for the remainder of their lives. For the past three decades, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. ISAR is committed to raising public awareness of dog and cat overpopulation through ISAR's Worldwide International Homeless Animals Day. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.com. Today we have a topic I think you will find really interesting, dogs in courtrooms to comfort witnesses during testimony. It is a growing practice with Pennsylvania being the latest state to establish guidelines. Our expert guest today is attorney and friend Mark Momjian, who leads a Philadelphia-based firm specializing in family law. Mark has many legal interests, including animals and the law. Mark, it's great to speak with you again. It's been too long. Likewise, Dr. Peter. Okay, so maybe you can start by giving us a little bit of the history of the use of animals in courtrooms to ease the stress of witnesses or for whatever purpose uh, there might be. Thank you, Peter. Um, I'd be happy to. Um, We've had animals in the courtroom uh, to the extent that they're service dogs. Um, That is not something new. If people... Um, rely on um, a service dog, uh, like a guide dog for the seeing impaired, um, etc. Those dogs have been allowed in courtrooms um, because they are trained uh, to meet um, human physical and emotional needs. And um, this is something different. We're talking about comfort dogs uh, or emotional support dogs. Um, Over the past um, 10 years or so, um, at least eight or nine states have allowed dogs in courtrooms to primarily ease witnesses while on the witness stand, particularly during the recounting of traumatic testimony, often testimony dealing with child abuse or sexual abuse. And courts now are... Um, starting all over the United States to consider whether uh, they have the power uh, to allow comfort dogs uh, to accompany witnesses. And the most recent case um, was handed down by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court less than two weeks ago in a matter of first impression. 
I would like to get the details on that, but first uh, tell us how typically this would work in a given proceeding. In a given proceeding, a lower court in a criminal case has um, great um, responsibility for determining how the courtroom is run. So typically, a prosecutor would ask a judge presiding over a trial whether or not a particular witness can have a comfort dog uh, on the wit, you know, at, uh, at the witness stand, and defense lawyers are rightly concerned that this might prejudice a defendant's right to a fair trial. So lower courts are asked to consider uh, both the witness's need uh, to have uh, an emotional support dog uh, to aid the witness in his or her testimony, but defendants rightly are concerned that it might uh, impact um, a defendant's right to a fair trial. So is there a science that looks at this issue, or is it sort of the judge uh, trying to figure it out with guidelines? Because uh, I could see the argument that uh, someone with a dog would be viewed more sympathetically than otherwise. Most defense lawyers would agree with you, Dr. Peter, square on. Um, the fact is there is some science um, out there already, and there are um, anticipated to be more uh, scientific studies on uh, impacts of um, comfort dogs in a courtroom on a jury. Um, the scientific studies are few and far between. Uh, there's a study out of a small college in South Carolina. And um, the studies are growing uh, because more and more states are allowing comfort dogs into the courtroom. And I'm sure, uh, as you point out, defense lawyers are very concerned that if a witness uh, is seen with a comfort dog, uh, that perhaps that witness is accorded more sympathy um, because of his or her need to have a comfort dog. So obviously this implicates uh, potentially constitutional concerns uh, under the 14th Amendment, even possibly under the Sixth Amendment, the Confrontation Clause. And um, courts are looking closely at how to do uh, what's called a balancing test to make sure um, that uh, a witness's ability to testify reliably and truthfully is balanced against a defendant's right to have a fair trial. And so um, a lot of lower courts are making these decisions, and uh, whoever's aggrieved in that process winds up appealing. And now uh, state uh, Supreme Courts are hearing these types of cases all over the United States. I see. Okay. And so, and this legal idea of balancing, that's sort of a common legal thing that judges do all the time. It is in a lower court courtroom. Um, the judge has uh, great authority to make these types of decisions, how to run uh, the case. Uh, but again, uh, people can differ in terms of what they think is a prejudicial impact. So lower courts are being asked to make these decisions, and um, both sides present their position with regard to uh, whether it's undue prejudice or not. And in the case in Pennsylvania, if we can talk about yeah. that, um, the judge went through certain um, uh, elements to make sure that the defendant received a fair trial. And uh, do you think that was successful? 
Well, um, not from not if you're a defense lawyer. Uh, the defendant in this case was charged with very serious crimes and was eventually convicted of third-degree murder uh, and sentenced to a term of imprisonment between 20 and you know 47 plus years. Um, <clears throat> during the um, uh, up lead to the trial, um, there was a 13-year-old uh, female witness with autism who had observed. Uh, the crime taking place, and the prosecution argued that for this witness to testify reliably and truthfully, a, a comfort dog would be needed. The defense objected, and the lower court had to um, employ a balancing test to see um, whether or not a dog could be employed uh, without unduly prejudicing the defendant's right to a fair trial. In this case, the lower court judge um, out of Chester County, Pennsylvania, um, decided that the dog would be in the witness box before the jury came out um, uh, into the courtroom so that they wouldn't see the dog being led into the jury box. Yeah. And the jury left uh, before the witness and the dog um, left the witness stand. So that was some of the criteria that the lower court employed to guarantee the defendant's right to a fair trial. Okay, that seems uh, reasonable to me. Are we always talking about dogs here? Or are we looking at other animals being lizards and, you know, geckos? You know? <laughs> You know, um, the slippery slope argument yeah. is always there, right, Dr. Peter? I mean, what's next? Um, a cat, a horse. I mean, people are going to stretch the boundaries of the law. That happens all the time. But so far, we're talking about uh, service dogs uh, that are specially trained. The dog in the case, uh, Commonwealth versus Purnell, was a half uh, Labrador retriever, half Golden retriever, who was specially trained by the sheriff's department um, and had that uh, specialized training uh, to stand by or to sit next to a witness. Now, we all know that even if a dog is in a witness box, uh, we all know dogs as sentient beings bark, they whimper, their tails wag, uh, they can scratch themselves. I mean, they can do things so that a uh, a jury might notice that there is something uh, hidden in the witness box. But that's uh, rectified by a lower court judge giving what's called an instruction to the jury to disregard any association that they might uh, connect with the witness and the fact that the witness has a comfort dog. So this is a very um, evolving area of the law. It's followed by not just animal law, um, lawyers, but by those involved in obviously criminal law, does do these um, service dogs uh, or comfort dogs apply uh, to civil litigation as well as criminal litigation? Um, these are things that are being studied in law school, and they're also being studied by, as you pointed out, scientists that are trying to gauge uh, how juries react when they know that a witness is accompanied by a comfort dog. Yeah. As you know, we are focused mainly on animal welfare, of course, uh, animals' intersection with people in society. I don't see any harm or possible harm to the animals involved in this. Seems, this seems it's either neutral or sort of interesting for the animals. That's a great question. Uh, and of course, uh, it's not unexpected coming from you and uh, <laughs> Dr. Laurie, who, you know, uh, often... Um, 
look at a lens through the um, animal's eyes. Um, no, I don't think there is. I mean, uh, the reality is um, the dogs are confined into a witness box. It's not a very big space. But as you point out, a witness could be on the witness stand for hours. Um, how does the dog get water? Um, what happens if the dog has to relieve itself? Um, these are fair questions to ask, um, and I think people have to monitor um, that as we um, understand uh, the impact. Now, of course, the greater impact is on the witness himself. In this case, um, 13-year-old autistic female who observed this very heinous crime was afraid um, that she would be the victim of gang violence uh, because there was a gang associated with this um, criminal act. And, you know, the witness um, obviously is comforted um, presumably by a dog um, and uh, who is trained uh, to uh, meet a human's physical and emotional needs, particularly during the potentially traumatic testimony in a criminal case like this. So, yes, I mean, I see it, um, you know, from that angle that it's more beneficial, obviously, to the witness. But I don't see any immediate harm, but it has to be monitored. Because as we said, what happens if a dog um, is in that witness box confined for two to three hours? I mean, it's usually courts have breaks. Uh, but what happens uh, in a case where uh, a judge doesn't want to see, doesn't want the jury to see the dog? Yeah. So it has to be handled delicately. Well, as you mentioned, this is rapidly evolving, and I'm sure we will continue, you and I, uh, corresponding on these cases as they come along. And I, I want to thank you once again for uh, coming on and uh, sharing your expertise uh, with us on this, Mark. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, Dr. Peter. Okay, we've been uh, chatting with Mark Momjian, and uh, we've got more with animals today after this break. It's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and today's Animals Today fun facts are about octopuses. Did you know the oldest octopus fossil was from an animal that lived 296 million years ago? And you can see that fossil at the Field Museum in Chicago. Octopuses have three hearts, one of which supplies blood to the organs, and the other two work to supply the gills. And their blood is a blue color, which transports oxygen better at cold temperatures and in low oxygen waters. And there are your Animals Today fun facts for today. Welcome back to Animals Today. Peter, are you ready for the lightning round quiz? Here we go. How many legs does a spider have? Oh, eight. Correct. Which bird can fly backward? The hummingbird. Yes. An echidna is what type of animal? We've talked about these. Um, a little, yes, we uh, have. A cute little rodent. Anteater. Oh, that's close. I think that was on your last lightning round quiz. They're very traumatic for me. It impairs my memory. What was the name of the rescued pet greyhound of the Simpson family? Oh, I don't know. It was one of your favorite shows. You don't know? I did love the Simpsons. Santa's Little Helper. That's the name of the dog? Listeners who like Simpson family are very disappointed with you, Peter. A specific kind of animal usually lives in a holt. What kind of animal is this? Turtle. Otter. 
A holt is like a den. What is the most recognizable physical feature of the male lion? The mane. It's mane, correct. A blue anthropomorphic dog that speaks with a southern drawl. He is... I can't remember. Huckleberry hound. Oh, yeah, huckleberry hound. Okay. What are baby goats called? Um, kids. Kids is correct. Helminthology is the study of, of what? Little parasites? Worms. Worms. Close. Which mammal has the highest blood wait, pressure? Wait, worms, paras, worms, parasites. Okay. Some, some overlap there. Well, I want to encourage you. <laughs> Which mammal has the highest blood pressure in the world? The giraffe. Giraffe is correct. The word vibrisi might refer to the blank of a cat. The whiskers. Correct. Yeah. True or false, snakes have slimy skin. Oh, no, no. False, snake skin is smooth and dry. Who's the fastest mouse in all Mexico? <laughs> really? Like a cartoon Speedy Gonzalez? Yeah, well, what Speedy. other mouse do you know? <laughs> Speedy Gonzalez? Speedy Gonzalez is correct. Do you remember him? He wears an oversized yellow sombrero, a white shirt and trousers, and a red kerchief around his neck, yeah. has a thick accent. Did you watch that as a kid? A little bit, also. Did you enjoy it? Uh, no recollection. Really. Did you find it racist, <laughs> offensive, insulting? You know, Speedy Gonzalez was born in the early 1950s. And after 40 years of being on the air, guess what? In 1999, it was taken off the air by the Cartoon Network for perpetuating stereotypes about Mexicans. And some say the network's owner, Ted Turner, ordered it to be taken off the air. And network officials claim they found this character derogatory and offensive. And on top of that, the character drank and smoked excessively. Yeah. Turner drank and um. Okay. What name is given to an adult female sheep? A U? Yes. How do you spell yeah. U? E-W-E. Yep. A formicarium is a living place for what kind of insect? Mm. Formicarium. Okay. A worm. Ant. Oh, yeah. An anthropomorphic cat who uses trickery and deceit to gain power. Oh, I think you laid this on me before. Puss in Boots? Puss in Boots is right. That's sexist. What is Canada's national animal? The, uh, oh, I'm going to say it is the Canada bear. Beaver. Okay, beaver it is. And Oh, yeah, their beaver appears on some of their coinage, right? That's correct. What was the name of the dog in a cartoon who was a crime fighter like Superman? Oh, super dog. Underdog. 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 And he lived under the radar as doing what kind of work? Well, he was a uh, vigilante. I don't know. He was Shoe a... shine boy. Oh, oh, that's what you mean. Like his... Uh, Regular job. That's right. Do you remember watching that as a kid? Yeah, I guess I wasn't paying enough. I was just a zombie in front of that television. I yes, guess you I, I should were. have paid more attention, actually. He speaks only in rhymes. Remember, Underdogs <laughs> speaks in rhymes. What's a famous rhyme he would state? Uh, here I come to... No, that's the wrong one. It's the Mighty Mouse. Um, underdog, I don't know. There's no need to fear. Oh, Underdog is here. Right. <laughs> Right. Oh, just like Billy Joel. That's right. Just like Billy Joel oh, speaks in rhymes. Maybe Billy Joel watched Underdog when he was composing <laughs> his first songs. Oh. Which common pet has the Latin name Caracius oritus? Oh. Uh, I'll give you multiple choice here. Please. A snail, a spider, or a goldfish? I'll say goldfish. Goldfish is correct. I think oritus in Latin means gold-plated. The name of the cat that would chase the yellow bird named Tweety. Sylvester? Yep. Suricata suricata, a species of mongoose, is commonly called what in English? 
Oh, don't know that one for sure. Meerkat. Oh, that meerkat is a kind of mongoose. That's yeah. interesting. I never knew that. Yeah, they're very cute, aren't they? They're like a size of a squirrel. You often see pictures of them together standing up tall on Looking two out. legs, monitoring for danger near their den, right? Yeah. A female turkey is called a hen. A male turkey is called what? A uh, male turkey, a uh, gobble something? Yeah, gobbler or tom. Tom. In the Tom and Jerry cartoon, Jerry was what kind of animal? Tom and Jerry, I, cat. Jerry was the mouse. Jerry was the mouse. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. What is the fastest bird in the world? The uh, peregrine falcon. Correct. Oh, yeah. Pythons are poisonous. True or false? They are not. Pythons are not poisonous. They do not possess venom. They just simply squeeze you to death. Yep. That's good. What is the name of Tarzan's chimpanzee? Oh, Tarzan's... Oh. Oh, Tarzan's chimpanzee. uh, Cheetah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many teats does a cow have? Cow. I'm going to say uh, six. Four. Okay. Have you ever milked a cow? Nope. Yep. Oh, maybe. We visited uh, Amish Dutch country when I was a little kid. We drove out to Pennsylvania. There's some pictures of me. I was very frightened on a pony. So it's possible I might have done it. And you just didn't count how many teats a cow had? <laughs> I didn't count. Okay. What animal is a Mexican hairless? A uh, dog? Yes. Okay. Now, see, that's racist in our politically correct world. Why? If you have this kind of dog, and so, I'm joking. Okay. If you have this kind of dog and someone asks you, though, yeah. what kind of dog do you have? What do you say? You say uh, he is um, just got from the got out of the barber. I don't know. Okay. I don't know what you... okay. Well, I'll tell you what you say. Another name for Mexican hairless dog is called Zoloitz Kintley. X-O-L-O-I-T-Z-C-U-I-N-T-L-I. Hmm. Okay. But yes, just say Mexican hairless. Which insect transmits bubonic plague? The uh, uh, flea. Flea is correct. Bubonic plague is mainly spread by infected fleas from small animals. What was the name of Fred and Wilma Flintstone's pet dinosaur? Dino. Yeah. Now, I paid attention during Flintstones. That was worth my attention. The largest bird of prey in the world is? Is the bird of prey some kind of... A bird of prey. Hawk or a vulture? No. Condor. Oh, condor. What kind of animal starred in the animated movie Ratatouille? Uh, a rat. Yes. Remember we watched that movie together. What was the rat's name? The rat's name was ooh, uh, Pierre. Remy. Oh, yeah. Remy. Remy. A pinniped is what yeah. type of animal? Is like a seal yep. or seal? like Seal. Uh. Which is the fastest two-legged animal in the world? Two ostrich. Yes. A ladybug has how many legs? It has uh, one, two, three, six. Six is correct. An ungulate animal has what? Hooves. Yep. Sockeye is what type of fish? A salmon. Yep. S- salmon. And what's another name for a wargle? <laughs> Why are you laughing? Wa- waggle? You're just making things up again? Waggle, schnaggle? <laughs> I'm not making it up. Okay. A dingo is oh, another dingo. name for a wargle. Okay, the wild dog of uh, Australia. Yeah. What kind of animal was a famous TV cartoon character named Alvin? Alvin was a one of the chipmunks. You got it. Yeah. Okay, once again, you did pretty good on your cartoon animals, but not so good on real-life animals. I know. what That means something. That's pretty... It does mean something. I know. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Mm-hmm.